Welcome back to another episode of People of Product. My name is George Brooks. And on today's episode, I have the pleasure of having one of our very own with us today, Michelle Frost. Michelle, welcome to the show. Hey, George. Thanks for inviting me on. Well, Michelle, tell the world a little bit about yourself and maybe your background, your role at Crema, and kind of some things you've been thinking about recently. Sounds good. The world sounds a little scary, but for the audience members, my name is Michelle. I'm a senior developer at Crema, and I've been with Crema for coming up on two and a half years now. Prior, I was in insurance for close to a decade. And outside of my development work for Crema, I'm also doing my master's in artificial intelligence right now at Johns Hopkins. So it's an exciting time, especially in the last couple months. Talk about the right time to be learning something. Yeah, the last few months, it's been a little crazy. It's, I just saw a LinkedIn post come across earlier because we all love being on LinkedIn all the time. Maybe a little sarcasm there. We, but it, the comment was basically, what are the things that are driving you crazy about LinkedIn right now? Is it too many like lists that look like Twitter posts, like the Twitter posts that are coming across? Is it too many people quoting Ted Lasso? Or is it too many people saying that AI is going to take your job? And it's a very popular topic right now. Everybody's curious. This is a fascinating time. But what I wanted to talk to you a little bit about today is everyone's asking the question. It's either going to take my job or I need to learn what to do with it, or I need to learn its potential, or I need to learn maybe we should be bringing this to our, to our table, if you will, at our company. But where does a person get even started in AI? I'm going to throw that to you. What do you think? I think there's definitely a difference too. We want to talk about personal uh, investigation versus how does a business get started. And I think the foundations of that is understanding what AI is and what AI is not. And then yeah. I think some of those, like the LinkedIn posts that you're talking about, a lot of them could use that clarification. I read another interesting question that I've been pondering over the last week was why do we measure AI success by human failure, which has been, yeah, it's been uh, trending in the industry lately. And people are saying, it's going to take my job. It's going to replace this. And we measure its success based off of its ability to take over that piece. So I, I thought that was such a great question. And it, it makes me wonder if we should be reframing how we're measuring its success and its placement within our organizations. Oh man, I have so many questions about what you just said there. That's fascinating. Yeah. So give me an example. Obviously we're all afraid that it's going to replace us for the day-to-day -day things that we do, but that's interesting what you're saying. Let me understand. Let me make sure I understand. You're saying that the quote or the idea is that really what that's just demonstrating is that we're, our failure would be that, that we're not able to adapt to that. Rather that we measure the AI system success by its ability to replicate a human. So that might come in from, even if we look back in, when was that, the 60s? I'm going to misquote myself there, a Turing test, right? Can I determine behind the screen, one computer, one human, which is the human, which is the computer? I think it started there, it developed in the game theory industry with DeepMind's AlphaGo and its ability to crush the human Go competitors. And so we've been measuring it historically via that, but I think that has gardened the fear in, in terms yeah. of if it's coming to replace me, 
And the reality is it's here, right? It's here. If you want to keep up in times, we have to integrate with it. So I think even just reframing that question of rather than how is it going to replace me, but how is it going to augment my workflow? How is it going to empower me to do better? And maybe it's checking off things that I, I don't really want to do, but I have to do them, empowering me to go do things that we're not going to be able to replace with AI. So you talked a little bit about the understanding of what AI isn't and what AI is. Maybe go a little bit further with that. What, how would you, when you're explaining this to your friends or to your peers, how do you explain what AI is or isn't? How much time do we have? <laughs> um, with it. I'm curious. We, I think we have all the time in the world. It's fine. I, that's, I think that question alone could cover an entire podcast because part of the problem with the terminology is that it has meant so many things over the past 80 years. So artificial intelligence, it's this bucket terminology. If you look back, we would have considered smart calculators AI, and today we don't really consider them that. A lot of state-space search, old school AI, as we'll call it, versus in the last 10 years, machine learning, deep learning, that's brought us into this new era. And I think most people, when they think about AI, they're in that, that deep learning section of thought, but truly AI encompasses the whole enchilada. I think that's perfect. I think you nailed it. Okay. So maybe we pivot forward then a little bit as a, an individual inside of an organization is thinking or paying attention or trying to ignore, but can't ignore the chatter around AI. What are some areas to start? Where do you get with the basics? Where do you understand where to get going? From a business perspective, I think that we first need to identify the problem that we're trying to solve. Are we just trying to throw AI at something so that we can check a box? Or are we really trying to augment its power in the right way? And hopefully the answer is the latter. And from there, so we have to really define what our problem is. What are we doing something repetitively that could be automated? Or is there another problem that takes us a long time to solve as an organization. Are we, I've seen a lot of AI use cases where someone has to manually go through lots of PDFs or spreadsheets and pull out information. And I think that's a pretty industry agnostic example. But I, yeah, it starts with just identifying what the AI system is that you want to adopt and what problem you're trying to solve. I think that's the one we probably heard the most recently is a lot of the a lot of the work that people trudge through is I'm getting PDFs. I've got this Excel spreadsheet that's been in 75 different versions, but it's really, you know, just the same sheet I've been using forever. And I want to get more out of it. I want, I can't get the stuff off the image, even though there are some ways to do that. So there's everything from OCRing it to, to actually going through a whole stack of PDFs and taking a full inventory of that and actually parsing out the information and then making sense of that information and then having it learn on that information. But when you think about artificial intelligence, I have this sense, or I think a lot of people have this sense that it's, oh, it's like it just read the whole book and it knows what the book is about and it can tell me the plot of the book. But when you're dealing with it in a business sense, how much of that is true? How much does it actually know? It depends on the model. What you're describing is what were the hype that we're seeing right now, which is around these foundation models or large language models like GPT, Google's BERT. But those you have to understand were, they're based off transformers, right? And they're large language models. They were built to understand a language, not necessarily perform a task. A lot of the lower level models that we've seen 
in the last 10 years, they're trained to do a specific task. Yeah. And I think that's a good separation, right? Because a lot of people thinking are only think about this large language model use case, which is that I can basically have some sort of a conversation with this thing that's predicting the next words that it might say. And we get the sense that it knows what it's saying, right? And sometimes it, it is pretty sophisticated. It really is impressive what it can pull off. And occasionally you can get it to do these like extra tangential things, right? So writing of snippets of code or generating an image or something like that. But there's so many other use cases for a lot of businesses actually thinking about AI being put into place. So what are other problems that you, do you think that's actually being used to solve or it has already been used to solve, but people just don't really aren't calling it that because it doesn't seem as fancy or as exciting. Yeah. If we stay tangent to those models, so they're the most advanced from the natural language processing NLP industry in the field. And that industry has actually really interesting. If you go back in the history and even the last, let's say 13 years, there was a paper that basically introduced word to back word embeddings that uh, most of the last research in the last 10 years have been, has been based off of those foundation models that we're talking about. They really stemmed from an architecture proposed in 2017 and a paper called attention is all you need. But LP has been around for a long time and it's been solving a lot of different problems in the industry. And I think some that maybe people don't think about all the time. One example is let's say we have a, a business that we have a lot of products. Maybe they're manufacturing products and there's thousands of them, right? So maybe we're some sort of big manufacturing company and we have an internet catalog. What if one of our customers is searching for an item, but they call it something slightly differently than what we do? If we just filter by the exact word that they've typed into our search thing, it might produce zero products when we do actually have it. It's just called something else. But if a customer reaches our website, they've searched for something and it says zero products, they're not going to say, I, I thought that this company had it. They're going to go back to Google and find the next company that has it. But if we have a natural language processing model on top of that search, we can say, oh, we typed in X, but I think you actually meant Y. So we're going mm -hmm. to give those results because we do have those things. Yeah. And I am so thankful for those types of searches because I'm incapable of typing, calling anything correctly. So it's constantly correct me. And even things like Grammarly, right? That's, oh, this is even somewhat kind of like spell check. Like we're guessing that you meant to do this. Even that in and of itself is kind of a basic form. What are some factors that people need to be considering as they're, as they're going into this though? What are, where do they need a lot of data? Is this something where they have to have it really structured and organized and a place that makes sense? How do they even, what's the first steps? Yeah. Data collection and aggregation is the foundation of any model, right? So there's, I'm sure there are lots of construction or house analogies we could give there. But if your foundation isn't right, the whole system is not going to be built properly. So yes, you do need data. You need a lot of data, depending on the use case. There are companies that are trying to solve for this in the cases where someone might have not have enough data that they need, but I, without going on my AI ethics tangent, also the right data is so key in understanding what consequences could come down the line if you get it wrong. Certain industries, it might not be a big thing if we're looking at manufacturing parts. Okay. There's probably not too much risk in there, but if we start looking at insurance and predictive policies that involve real people, we have to consider the data that we're building on because if it's human data, it's likely for error. And if 
you build a model based off of air data, the model is not going to be great. Let's talk a little bit more about that. I know we could have a whole nother episode, and maybe we will, about the ethics side of this, because I think this is definitely an underlying concern that everyone has, really, both the risk of the ethical biases that might be taking place in, we'll just say, AI, AI modeling in general, but also the security risks, the where is it going to turn on us risks, like everybody's thinking through these potentials. But I want to, I, before we get to the fear of it, because I don't want to necessarily push that any further than it already probably exists in some people's minds because of the movies or because of stories, or because of headlines. Let's talk a little bit about the practical side. What, what is the steps? If I think about here's what I needed to go and you maybe even go one level deeper than that, because I think you talked about, we need to be thinking about how to collect data or get at least get access to a good source of data. What next? Is there even technology platform, or how do you train a model? That's, I think there's some people going, you're saying words, but what does that mean? Yeah, that could be a fun video down the road is come up with some really simple model that we can explain and walk through in 30 minutes. Maybe, I don't know, like a really simple linear regression model or something, but we should, we should definitely do that. Yeah, plug for the Crema YouTube channel. Definitely go check it out. That will be coming. We're, you just fallen. How can people think about maybe a process about which going at it? I think we're all product people and this is just another product. It's another flavor of a product. So it does have a life cycle. There's an iterative process. And actually I would say that iterative process is so key here because evaluation is a critical step maybe even more so than if we're shipping out like a a web UI product, we get user feedback, right? And we'll go and we'll tweak it. We need to make sure that we're evaluating our model in production too, because sometimes what we expect and what we see in our local results is going to actually vary by the time we do put that model into production. The data can change from what we expect to what's actually out there in the world, real world. So it's a life cycle, it's data collection, it's data prep. That's really a huge chunk of what you're going to have to do to get a model or any AI system in place. And then we're going to do the training. We're going to go through the testing, the evaluation, ML ops before, before chat GPT exploded the AI industry. Everybody was talking about ML ops. That, that was actually a big shift. I would say in the last, what month is it? April, eight, eight, six to eight months. So there's tell a, me what ML ops is that's I've seen it referenced a few times, but I don't know that I could tell you exactly what it is. Very similar to DevOps, but for machine learning, Makes sense. So DevOps, SecOps, ML ops. Yeah, yeah, totally. Machine learning, ML ops, where we host our models, deploy our models. That's a pretty big field for a lot of AI startups. Out of curiosity, this might be a little, since we know that we have product managers and folks that are close to the craft that listen to the podcast, what are common frameworks, languages that folks are using to write or to train these models? Python. Yeah. I just wanted somebody mm-hmm. to say it because I don't think we've brought it up on any of the previous podcasts yet, but I know Python seems to be the go-to. Are there, are we seeing, so whenever I think of the early days of Python or Ruby or go on, going back to C++ and things like that, there there was always these frameworks that started to get laid on top of it. Are we starting to see frameworks that are coming out for ML? Django was a great example of being able to do MVC for model view control for building basic web apps, right? 
is are we seeing ML types frameworks that are getting layered on top of Python that is helping move this forward faster? Hugely. Yeah, it's it's more AI and machine learning is turned into more using knowing how to use those libraries than necessarily having to, for example, build a linear regression model from scratch. You could do that. You could do it in sure. ML and Python. But why would you go reinvent the wheel when you have libraries like sklearn that you can do it in three lines? Yes. So yeah, there's a ton of libraries, obviously TensorFlow, Keras, those deep learning libraries, you can pull those into Python, just about everything has a Python package now. And, and that's also why it is so important to understand your data because we're elevating some of these processes from historically a, a data science scientist's job to now it, it is becoming easier for developers to use these third-party libraries and packages. And that's great. We really want to enable that. And also we need to make sure that people understand what they're doing with it and what impact it could have in their industry and their company. Yeah. And I think that goes to that expertise, right? So I think that while there still is always going to be the, the data analysts, the data scientists that are really thinking about how can we get the most refined versions of these things out of large data sets? And I think that will continue to exist. But for those that are just getting started, especially if you have access to a product team, that expertise has shifted a little bit, or at least the access to that expertise, it feels like it's shifted to where it is more approachable for a team of folks like Kremo's teams, our product teams, to start really introducing that into our product delivery offerings where we can start to say, yeah, absolutely, we can bring ML or AI or whatever you want to call it to the table as a part of how we think about product in general. Absolutely. And I think it's important to note too that a product team might look a little bit different for an AI system than a web application because we do need those experts on staff. You need some sort of a data scientist, depending on the what you're working with, right? There, there are probably use cases where you don't necessarily need someone there, but it's helpful, especially if you're looking at best practice, yeah, for sure. predictive pipeline yeah. on data. You want the data scientists, your engineers, but then also domain experts, depending on your industry, policy advisors, lawyers, like those should all be part of our product team for these systems so that we can have the right experts in place to mitigate risk down the road. If we don't want to talk about ethics, we can talk about risk. And if you don't take those things into consideration in the beginning, then you know you could wind up in a tricky situation down the road. There's a reason all these large language models have a bunch of disclaimers written around them as they're introducing them out to the world, right? There's just the unknown of what it might say or do or how it will react because in some ways that if it's getting fed more data, it's going to learn from that data and then it might react or respond or give data back in a way that we weren't expecting. Now, some of those models are going to be very specifically trained in a way that we know we can expect what it will respond with. But for those that are a little bit more open-ended, there's potentially large implications there versus maybe the data in, data out that we have in a very traditional web application model, right? Where it's to say, I'm doing a CRUD-based approach here, which is kind of that create, read, update, delete. I know what I'm creating. I know what I'm reading. I know what I'm updating. I know what I'm deleting. And some of that with an ML model, but the potentials are that it could go a different direction and you'd have to make sure that you've at least mitigated those risks of what it could return or what it could recommend or what it can produce. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so then... 
I guess wrapping up kind of best practices, what are areas or considerations we should be thinking about when folks are getting into this space or exploring this space? What are some best practices of just getting started? Um, tough question. Because <laughs> there's, there's a lot. There's a lot to consider, yeah. but I think that it, I, the reason I bring that up is because I think a lot of people are afraid they're either going to go down the wrong path and run into those risks or they're maybe they're just playing right now. They're just trying to wrap their head around the potential because they need to tell their boss or they need to tell their board or they need to tell whoever, yeah, we are paying attention to what's happening in the world and trust us, it'll be okay. And we're going to go there too, but we want to make sure we know why. And so maybe more towards going back into the business, why or how should a business be really looking at approaching this work? Yeah, I think that kind of goes back to maybe changing our frame of mind if we are looking at it to just check a box and keep up with others. Certainly, yes, we are in the, what is it, 4.0 industrial revolution, industry 4.0 yep. right now. I think we're bleeding in yep. the 5.0 since some of the foundation models have come about. But th so there, there is a requirement that if you want to stay relevant, you need to be keeping up with your competitors. And that is going to involve AI. And also make sure that you're not spending up some project to just check a box because it might not be sustainable. Getting those domain experts in early, getting in the engineers early, that's an important piece of this. And making sure you have a partner like us, like Crema, to help guide you through those decisions. I love the plug. I love the plug. That's great. And I think that goes back to something you said, and this is something we talked about on even before the AI craze with product in general is that product is like a product and specifically even maybe AI, and we won't get into kind of the philosophy of this, but it's a living organism. Now, someone actually ask, is it actually a living organism? That's not my point. What I mean is that once you build these things, they aren't just, they're not like a widget that comes off a factory line that you go, cool, I have the widget. Now the world can have the widget and it's kind of this finished product. It is a thing that has to be monitored and cared for and iterated on and refined. I was watching an interview with some of the folks from OpenAI, and one of the things they were talking about with ChatGPT was what really made it fascinating was that they were they were going back in and refining it and telling it this is a good answer and this is not a good answer. They were refining the model all the time to the point that it got to where we experienced this kind of like magic moment. And I think even with some of the potential clients that we're talking to about this type of work, there is the, whoa, it can do that. And yeah, but that's just, this is just for us to prototype this. Imagine the potential when we actually spend some time with it, feed it more data, tell it that's the right response, or this is the better response. And we start to really train that model. And I think that's language I want people to really think about is the idea that you are training this model. Training obviously means coding it in, but you are teaching it how to be better, right? Yeah, and part of that too is that, going back to that iterative life cycle, that happens by feeding that error back through the model and making sure we're accounting for it. If we just start up a model and let it run, like it doesn't mean anything because it's never learned from its errors. There, There is that backpropagation method, we're not just I mean, you could, but if you want it to be good, right, you want to minimize that error. You want to make it accurate. You want to account for the biases. It's an ongoing investment for sure. Okay. So as we round out, I want to, I usually just flip the switch a little bit and ask folks towards the end, and maybe we didn't prep for this. So I'm going to throw you a little bit of a curveball. but what are areas that, especially as you've been learning or as you've been experimenting yourself or that you've been watching or talking to others, 
how are people getting this wrong? What are they doing that now, again, there's the risks, there's the ethics, there's a bias, but even just the functional approach, like where do they often get stuck or tripped up a little bit in, in getting their, getting into this properly? Yeah, you, that is a curveball, George. Right. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, were you expecting anything less from our conversation? <laughs> never, never. A lot of different, a lot of different points. I, I couldn't answer that question without also speaking into the ethics of that yeah, because, of like you said, this isn't something that we just send off the world and then we pull it back. Once it's out there, it's out there. So we need to make sure that we're anticipating that early on so that we're not perpetuating systems that are in play today in our society. Because if you think it's hard to undo that what we've done as humans, imagine how hard it is to undo what we've done as, as humans and then amplify that by a predictive model that hurts individuals. Right. So I, I would say not considering those potential fallouts is one of the biggest pieces of error. I would also say I've, I've seen a lot. So I'm, I am new to LinkedIn. I finally joined four months ago. Yeah. I spent 10 years avoiding you don't need, You don't need to be on LinkedIn. It's fine. <laughs> so going through an online master's program, I have found the best yeah. way to connect with my classmates was actually through LinkedIn. So I finally joined and it's been really interesting for me being new on that platform and making connections and reading what people are posting. And I've had a lot of moments where I've been reading something someone's posted about GPT or its siblings, and I'm like, oh, that's just wrong. And so I, I think that there's, it's really wonderful to have curiosity and also like a moment's pause before we put something, a thought or a proclaimed fact out into the world. Let's fact check ourselves and let's fact check chat GPT while we're at it, because I think a lot of people are using that and they need a lot of errors. Yep, yep. So I, I think that people are listening to the conversations, some with maybe less experience or less knowledge than others. And we need to take care in that regard so that we're not spreading misinformation. I think that we're wrong to focus too intently on the what was that maybe space odyssey it's like how you know of this overseeing general artificial intelligence we can talk about that too but let's also talk about the reality of the models that we do already have in production yeah yeah that's really good maybe the last thing we'll touch on here real quick is obviously you're going through a formalized program for this and but where can companies be thinking about really equipping their employees, maybe whether it's employee training. I don't know if we necessarily want to go, what do people need to know as they're coming into this? How will they think about retraining their employees to be ready to use it as a tool, to be empowered by it, to be in, enhanced by it in some way, or actually training them how to use it and how to do it? Yeah, I, it's an interesting time right now for ML engineers because of these foundation models. I think we're going to see a rise of more prompt engineering than maybe traditional machine learning or engineers or data scientists. But I still think it's really valid to say, is this an ask that I am going to put on my dev team? Do I want my developers who maybe have been full stack historically to go out and learn these things? And if you know the answer is yes, and that's fine, then make sure that they're equipped too, because there's a pastry box of different algorithms and approaches to every single problem. And you want to give them the space and time to make sure that they're picking the right one. So yeah, we, we want to empower developers with, I would say the time and resources to go learn these things. And I don't, I'm not 
stating that they need to go get a master's program or formal education. I'm doing that because I truly love it. And I want as much information as I can possibly attain. And I wanted to go do that at a higher institution. I don't think that's a requirement. I think that there is so many resources out on the web. There's so many online courses. There's wonderful books. This book is every single AI class I have ever had has used this book. It's Artificial Intelligence, A Modern Approach, 4th Edition. She's beefy, but... For those that are only listening to the podcast, that book is approximately two and a half inches thick. It's about... It's like a little over a thousand pages. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a good share. That's a good resource. Let's wrap up. I think that, first off, thank you so much for one, your intentionality in this space, because I think that there's one thing, like you said, it's it can feel a little FOMO, right? We just need to run in and learn. And I'm definitely one that loves to get close to things and to play just so I can say, you know what, I understand some of the vocabulary. I've seen some of the potential, but I don't want to like put all my chips into one, one bet, right? But I do think there's some staying power to what we're going to see from AI going into the future. And it's becoming a part of, gosh, almost every conversation we're having with potential clients right now. I'm really excited that you're part of the team and helping shape this at Crema. So thank you for being here. Thank you for your thoughtfulness as well about how to do this do this work thoughtfully and with good ethics, because I think that's something that can be, even if just gently swept to the side, might have big ramifications. I appreciate your intentionality there. Yeah. And likewise, um, I can't say enough thank yous or praise for Crema and allowing me to carve for this, this space out. It's so supportive and curious and inquisitive. It's been a really cool experience to come back and share with everybody too. I'm pumped to keep learning with you and alongside you and to have some of our philosophical debates in the afternoons over a glass of wine sometimes because we go off and we go, huh, what are the potentials? And is this, where's it going to be? And what's it going to, what's it going to do to us? And so I love all that. So thank you for being a part of that journey. And as always to everyone who comes on the podcast, thank you for joining me today. This has been such a pleasure. Thanks for having me, George. I appreciate it. Thanks, Michelle. People of Product is brought to you by Crema, a digital product agency. We believe creativity, technology, and culture can help individuals and organizations thrive. Learn more at crema.us.